Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Parker Palmer, a writer, speaker, activist, and founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. He has reached millions worldwide via his 10 books, including the best-selling Healing the Heart of Democracy, Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, and A Hidden Wholeness. His latest bestseller is On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Palmer holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley and 13 honorary doctorates. In 1998, the Leadership Project, a national survey of 10,000 educators, named him one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education. I first learned about Parker through Krista Tippett. I was a part of the On Being Weekend at 1440 Multiversity many years ago and was just so moved by his books. So welcome to the show, Parker. Thank you, Yasmin. Delight to be with you. Likewise. So, Parker, your book, Let Your Life Speak, was so transformative for me. Can you share what you mean by the phrase, living the life that wants to live in me? Because I was really profoundly moved by it. Yes, thank you. Uh, That's at the core of the book, of course, that notion that there is a life inside of us that wants to live through us and that we don't always honor. I guess the best way to explain what I mean is to think about those of us, uh, and not everyone in the world by a long shot has this privilege, but those of us who have the privilege to uh, choose the work we want to do early in life, uh, in our late teens or in our 20s, and then we wake up 15 or 20 years later, realizing that this isn't me. Maybe it's no longer me. Maybe it never was me. Because those decisions we make when we're younger about what path of work or vocation uh, we decide to walk, those decisions are often shaped by forces outside of ourselves. You know, they're shaped by parental desires. Parents so often have the wish that their kids would live their own unlived lives. Um, And sometimes they are shaped by expectations of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be this or that, some sort of external label that we wear when they make demographic decisions. And sometimes those decisions are shaped by powerfully toxic forces in our culture and social systems, misogyny, uh, sexism, homophobia, uh, racism, all these things that get internalized and can lead us to bad life path decisions when we're younger. And so, again, if we're lucky, we wake up one morning realize that I'm not living the life that wants to live in me, the life that people often discover was giving them hints from a very young age of who they are and what they're called to, Uh, called to, again, not by any external force, but by their very own nature. Um, I'm a big advocate of the idea that 
every child who's born into the world comes into the world as this kind of person rather than that or that or that. And that by uh, when, a, when an older loving adult keeps track of that child's tropisms, because I think we all have tropisms kind of like plants, what it is we're drawn toward and what it is we're repelled by. When you keep track of a young person's tropisms, um, you get strong clues as to what life is wanting to live in them. So that's at least a flyover of that, what for me is, has become a very foundational idea. And Parker, what were some of the hints in your own personal life that you could remember? Well, um, so I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and like many boys who, I was born in 1939, so I'm 82 now, looking back a long way. Um, but like many boys in the 50s, I was in the, the 40s and 50s, um, I was drawn to making model airplanes and trying to fly them. Um, and for a long time, I thought, oh, I, I want to be a pilot because, you know, there was a great romance around aviation back in the day. And that surely, I thought, was, my, was going to be my path. But at the same time that I was making and flying model airplanes, I was sort of doubling down on my interests by uh, writing small books, put that word in quote, in quotes, um, that were basically uh, eight and a half by 11 inches uh, pieces of paper on which I typed words explaining things like how how an airfoil, the wing of an aircraft, achieves lift uh, to carry the, the aircraft into the sky, and um, drawing illustrations and then stapling these things together and passing them around whoever, whoever would read them, which was very few people, I think mainly my mother and father. <laughs> and for a long time, I, I truly thought, okay, aviation is, is my vocation, in fact, in high school, an interview that they did with me in the student newspaper uh, says, he, he tells us that he wants to be a pilot. It took me a while to realize that what I really wanted to do was write books, uh, which I was doing at that very young age. It was the, it was the exploration of ideas, and especially th around things that baffled me, things that are, I couldn't understand. Uh, the research, and then committing what I knew to paper and trying to illustrate it if I possibly could, either with a drawing or a story of some sort. And I think in many ways that um, that same motif runs through the, the 10 books that I've now written over the last 40 years. So for me, that, that would be an example uh, of a tropism I had early on. But Obviously, they are sometimes tricky to interpret, um, and you may read them as this when, in fact, they're pointing toward that, but the tropism is there. Mm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, and I'm really curious if you could talk to us about, going back to the first question, the moment in your life where 
you decided that you are not living the life that want, wants to live through you and making some kind of course correction. Because I think in one of your books, you, you talk about this, the, I believe it was Let Your Life Speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I, I do. And maybe again in the new book, uh, On the Brink of Everything, about getting old. Um, it's a great question for me, Yasmin, um, because it, it does bring back a vivid memory of a really life-changing moment. Um, so, as you mentioned, I got a PhD uh, in sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and I was in Berkeley for a good deal of the 1960s, which, of course, was a, an era of student uprising, social turmoil, uh, social change, activism, um, things that spoke deeply to me, having come from a rather sheltered suburban Chicago background. It was certainly my first rich, deep introduction to diversity and to questions of justice, economic justice, racial justice, justice in all forms. I went to Berkeley and invested heavily in a PhD. I, my investment was both monetary and energetic uh, over a period of several years, thinking that I would become a professor and, and maybe rise in the ranks in some university or another. And, and indeed, toward the end of my time in Berkeley, uh, 1969, um, I started getting offers from a variety of of uh, good universities where I had always thought that's that's where I'm headed. But it was 1969. The cities were burning. Vietnam was raging. Um, race uh, and other forms of diversity were on the agenda big time. And I had learned a lot about the importance of social change and the quest for justice. So I laid down my plans uh, to become a university professor and have never, ever been on a university faculty full-time. I've done a couple of visiting professorships. But instead, in 1969, I moved to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer working on issues of social justice, uh, racial justice in particular, and in particular, fighting against redlining and blockbusting and all the things that, or some of the things that reinforce the racist patterns and culture, the white supremacist patterns and culture of American society. And I worked away at that for five years, making very little money. Uh, and I was at that time married and had... Um, Two, two and then three kids uh, to consider as well. And, um, uh, it, and, and yet the, the work I was doing, uh, while uh, totally against the grain in terms of my original plans for myself, was deeply fulfilling despite, you know, the, the sacrifices or, 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 or despite the the limitations of it as some people would have seen them where do you go from there i we I, working with another person or two i created um, our our own community organizing uh, outfit 
And um, we raised our own money for this work uh, three months at a time. So um, as, I, as, as that time went on, uh, people would ask me, Parker, why are you doing this? Why, why are you throwing away a very promising career in academia um, to work away at community organizing, racial justice, and all these things you keep talking to us about? And I said, well, the honest answer is um, I can't give you a clear, understandable answer. I can barely give one to myself. But I can tell you this. I can't not do what I am now doing. I can't not do it. In other words, if I were to unpack those words today, I would say I had this, this deep imperative of the soul that this is the work in which I belonged. And after five years, through a variety of what turned out to be happy accidents, I... Um, left that job and moved into an intentional Quaker community. Um, a lot of people don't know much about Quakerism, but it's, it's a form of Christianity that um, uh, advocates and practices nonviolence and whose members, though few in number, have been deeply engaged in great transformational social movements around the globe for a few hundred years. I was very drawn to the whole theory and practice of nonviolence. And I went there uh, to this intentional Quaker community to learn more about that. And I'm very, very grateful for the decade worth of experience I had there, not only learning intellectually and academically about what nonviolence involved, but also learning experientially about what it meant to be in community, to live in community, a, a radically egalitarian community, where um, my own, you know, sense of my own sense of, of entitlement uh, as a white male in this in the USA uh, was was slowly ground away because the money I was making there, I became the director of the study program fairly quickly this adult study program that was sort of the cash crop of this particular community near Philadelphia. Um, the money I was making there as dean of studies was exactly the same money that an 18-year-old coming to cook in the kitchen because he or she didn't know what to do next was making. You know, radical egalitarianism in finances, in, in salary scale, no scale at all, a flat rate for everyone who worked there. And I worked there for a decade, again, not making much money, but finding a deeply satisfying life, not only for me, but for my family. Um, and, and so th that was a transformational time in my life. And actually, the point at which I began having enough uh, rich and compelling experience to start writing about it. Um, and so the, the first of my books, the first and second of my books, uh, came out during my 10, 11 years, actually, at, at this community called Pendle Hill near Philadelphia. Wow. 
So fascinating. I have heard a lot about the Quakers and the social movements that have been started from the Quakers. I believe Greenpeace is one of them. Is that correct? Yes, it certainly has had heavy Quaker influence, yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm really curious how you were able to be so resilient in not taking people's feedback or pushback on almost carving your own path and leaving the consensus reality. Like how, how did you convince yourself? I know that you mentioned that, you know, in, in the earlier community organizing role that it was something you could not, not do. Um, but how are you able to just not get pulled into the <laughs> collective hypnosis? Hmm. Yes. Well, I'm sure there have been times in my life when I was pulled into the collective hypnosis. And in fact, in this, this last few years of racial reckoning in this country, I've, I've had to dig deeper into um, white privilege and white supremacy than I ever have before, not as an academic study, but as a way to understand certain dimensions of my own life. Um, so I don't think with things like that, it's ever one and done, you know, for someone like me, or I think for anyone, really, these are deeply challenging um, like re- readjustments uh, we have to make to the world as it as it truly is. I, I, in many ways, Yasmin, I don't have a good answer to your question about how I did it. Um, the, the words that come to mind are words like these. Um, so when I was when I told people this is something I can't not do, I think the thing I couldn't articulate at the time was that I had a deep intuition um, that if I failed to respond to this imperative of my soul, I was putting my soul at risk. I was putting my identity and integrity at risk, and uh, somehow, some way, it became clear to me that that was a much bigger risk than the risk of losing favor with people because I was stepping out, stepping off the path that most people of my age and time were taking. Um, It it was a much bigger risk to lose my own soul, my own identity and integrity uh, than it was to live, uh, to learn to live on relatively little money um, it, it, it was almost a, you know, a, a, an intuitive cost benefit analysis, but I calculated cost in a very different way than an accountant <laughs> would calculate cost, or maybe even than a career counselor would calculate cost. Um, and I think in many ways that, that saw me through it, that doesn't mean that my path was smooth and easy and that I was confident every day of my life about what I was doing and just, you know, determined to stick with it. On the contrary, I had days of, of real struggle, you know, bordering on despair. And as you know, from reading Let Your Life Speak, I've, I've had three deep dives in my adult life into serious clinical depression. Um, so it, it's, it's not that everything was smooth and easy. Uh, but it, it 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 was again because it was something I couldn't not do. I think there are layers and layers beneath that 
of maybe I could put it this way, taking myself seriously. Um, you know, not seriously in terms of uh, of how important my life is or, you know, how, how crucial to humankind it is that I stay the course, but taking my own life seriously in terms of of not participating in my own diminishment. And that that idea has become a very critical one to me that I talk with with people about that that no punishment the world can lay on you can possibly be worse than what happens to you when you conspire in your own diminishment. Mm. You know, when you walk away from your soul deep, heart deep, identity, integrity deep imperatives and say, okay, I'll play it by someone else's rules, or I'll conform to someone else's images of what my life my life is meant to be or what a good life is supposed to look like. At age 82, I'm very happy with the life I lived and therefore very glad that I didn't succumb to other people's definitions or cultural definitions. But it, it wasn't it wasn't easy, and yet sitting here today at my age, um, I, I feel like I, you know, I'm in possession of my own heart, and that's I don't know any better reward than that. Mm, wow, that's so powerful because I think so many people in Western society are, or at least in the U.S. I can speak anecdotally. It feels like a lot of people are sacrificing themselves um, and sacrificing parts of their identity and soul every single day of their life. Yeah, I I agree, and it's I think it's one of as I said earlier. I realize that I'm speaking from the point of view of a person who has the privilege to make vocational decisions um, and and somehow see them through. But um, you know. When you have privilege, then I think you're under an extra obligation to ask, what's the best way to use this privilege? Um, and I think I did that all along, too. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Parker, I want to talk a little bit about uh, something you said with age. You say, age itself is no excuse to wade in the shadows. It's a reason to dive deep and take creative risks. And so I want to talk about how you're continuously taking these creative risks, especially at the age of 82, and what advice you'd like to share with our audience on being able to take creative risks. Yeah. So that's that's from my latest book, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, uh, which was a real joy to write, uh, pull together and and I now have it, you know, a couple of years after I wrote it to remind me of what I was thinking at the time, <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, age age and the experience of aging is a, a moving uh, target. Uh, things keep changing, um, but I'm still with uh, everything I said in that in that book. I for me the the whole aging. Um, conundrum as it is for many people in, in our culture begins with the fact that I'm just one of the lucky ones to have a chance to get old. Um, 
not everybody by a long shot makes it to age 82. And there's a, there are a lot of demographic factors, as we have seen horrifically in the pandemic, that dictate or, or significantly shape life expectancy in ways that are really unfair and unjust and the need to change in our society. Um, and so what do you do with, with good luck? And especially when you're at a point in life where, and I'll put this as, as baldly as I know how, where you don't have anything to prove to anybody. <laughs> um, you know, we all spend time in our younger years trying to prove something to someone um, that, that we're worthy, that we're okay. Sometimes we're trying to prove that to ourselves. Um, but if you're sensible about it at age 82, you realize, oh, um, my, my, my chances to prove myself something different than I have been all these years are, are over and gone. <laughs> so it, it would be silly to keep trying to play that game. Um, in fact, it's a silly game at all times, but I understand why when we're building careers, we have to keep doing things that uh, sort of say, okay, here's what I can deliver. I hope you're interested. Um, I, I get that. Uh, and that's not, not to be ashamed of. But I have nothing left to prove or no chance to prove anything new. There is nothing new, I think, to prove. So the questions become, for me, become, what, what keeps me alive? Um, the, the, the big question in old age is, what's life giving and what's death dealing? Because now you're you're staring death in the eye. You know I can no longer pretend as I did at uh, 42 or 52 or 62 or even 72 that yeah death is out there, but it's a long way off. Um, according to the actuarial tables, it, it isn't a long way off when you're 82 years old. And and so the the whole question of choosing life rather than anything that is even metaphorically death dealing becomes an urgent question, at least it does for me. Um, and I find that diving deep rather than staying in the shallows um, is important to, uh, to my staying alive. Um, and I realize that as time goes on, I will have more physical limitations that will uh, get in the way of diving deeply in certain respects. I, I may have more mental limitations. I already have some of both. You know, I have underlying conditions in my body. And, and I am, I think, intellectually less able to do things like multitasking and, you know, maintaining, um, well, juggling 30 balls at a time. Uh, I'm more down to one or two in the air at any given moment, <laughs> and and even then can forget why I came upstairs and what I was looking for. Um, so you you adjust to these things, and in my case, I've observed that while my thinking may be maybe I've lost a step or two in the quickness of of my mind, I feel like I'm diving deeper into the richness of, that's possible 
with that wonderful mix of thought and feeling and bodily knowledge and all the other forms of intelligence we can bring to living because we are multi-gifted human beings. And so for me, and, and to be very concrete, Yasmin, um, in, in the pandemic, where like most of us, I'm sure like you, my work has been pretty much limited to sitting in front of my computer and talking on Zoom or Skype, um, there was a learning curve for me to do that kind of work rather than to appear in front of audiences. Um, but I quickly learned to love the interviews and the webinars and, um, and, and so forth, um, which I've done a lot of in the last 18 months or plus. And, and I've also uh, come to be enormously grateful for the gift of, of being able to reach out in these online forms to an international audience of people that I never would have met and from whom I never would have learned if it hadn't been for Zoom and Skype. I never would have been able to get on, at my age, uh, enough airplanes, even if they were flying at the time, um, to go to all these places and meet and interact with and learn from all these amazing people. So that that's an example of the kind of thing I mean by diving deep and taking creative risks. I fully understand, again, that I'm speaking from a privileged point of view, and there are some people who have had more private careers than I've had, their, their work may have been in the home, the, you know, the critical important work of raising kids and caring for grandkids. And I don't want to talk about this in a way that somehow excludes them from creative risk taking, because I've known so many people, um, older folk of that age, who continue to reach out to the next generation long after their kids have grown and left home, you know, long after the grandkids have gotten to the point where they kind of want to navigate on their own, to individuate, as the psychologists say, um, these good people uh, realize that they have gifts in, in nurturing young people, and they reach out to the, the millions and millions of young people on our planet who are just yearning for some older person to care about them, to pay attention to them, to ask them questions, to be interested in their lives. Um, bless every last one of them, even if they're, they're, even if what's within their reach is only a limited sample, as it is for most of us, of those millions of yearning kids. Every one of these folks is doing important work. So. The, you know, the forms of diving deep rather than retreating uh, when you don't have to into the privacy of your own home, I think those forms are multiple and everyone has an opportunity as they are able uh, to engage in one of those forms. Mm. Yeah, it's so uh, beautiful to see how you can still adapt. And, you know, I can just say that I thought that you, it was so amazing to see that you connected with the software 
right away um, without any kind of hiccups. And I was just sort of amazed by that because <laughs> I usually have about 15 minutes of tech troubleshooting with most people. Um, so I, I just, you know, can tell that you have spent time uh, in that tech learning curve and it shows, and I think it makes a huge difference, right? Because you are now able to say yes to things and reach more people and have those intergenerational relationships. And um, yeah, so I think that's a pretty good example. Well, thank you. That's high praise. I, you know, I'm not yet a digital cowboy, but I'm getting there. <laughs> I was impressed. I, I was impressed. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Parker, since you're now at the age of 82, if you were to look back on your journey, what is something that has surprised you the most when it comes to maybe some of the decisions you've made uh, on your career or some of the insights that you've had when it comes to humanity? And really could be wide ranging here, but I'm just curious, like what are some of the most surprising insights that you've had on your journey? Well, I think looking back, uh, it does surprise me that I was able to negotiate that critical turn that I talked about earlier from academia into social engagement and toward nonviolent non social action um, at age 29 or 30. Uh, I still don't know exactly uh, you know, how, and, how and why I did that, although I've given you the best, the best explanation that I can. Um, but when I think about the way I was raised in, a, in an all-white Chicago suburb, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I always felt ill at ease in the academic environment, even though I did well, very well as a student. I always felt that somehow they'd discover how dumb I really am and toss me out, you know, the, the old... Uh, imposter syndrome or that sense of fraudulence that I think infects a lot of folks in academia. Um, and maybe it was that sense of fraudulence that actually contributed to my desire to get out and take another vocational path. I don't know. But I'm surprised looking back that, um, you know, that I, at a relatively young age, I was able to start swimming if not upstream, at least cross cross current, um, and eventually, I guess, pretty much upstream. I'm surprised and delighted that again, I was I was lucky, and, and I worked hard at it because I I felt you know maybe this is one of my gifts. Um, surprised that eventually I was able to make a living independently by writing and traveling and speaking, uh, doing lectures and workshops and founding an organization that sponsors retreats, the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, and I have worked independently for somewhere between 30 and 40 years, not on a, an organization's payroll during that whole time. Um, uh, other than the occasional visiting professorship for, you know, half an academic year or a full academic year a couple of times. Um, so that has surprised me. 
Um, I, I, I'm, I'm also surprised by, as someone who's been thinking about vocation for a long time, you know, to what am I called? What, what is the life that's trying to live in me and how can I follow it rather than the, the standard recipe for people like me um, or the one that my mentors wanted me to pursue? Um, I'm kind of surprised that my sense of vocation really didn't come together until I was 50, 51, 52 years old. And I guess I had lived long enough by that time to see how the various threads of my life were starting to weave together in something that looked a little more like a sturdy rope, you know, um, so, some sort of consolidation was happening around age 50. But it, you know, it took me 30 years to get there from the start of my higher adventures in higher education to the point where I came out saying, oh, okay, I'm a, I'm a writer, traveling teacher, and activist. That's my vocation. And I think if there's one word to describe the vocation I've been pursuing all along, it's probably the word teacher. Uh, I think that's what I was doing when I was a community organizer. That's what I was doing in the Quaker community as the dean of studies at this adult study center. That's what I'm doing through my writing and speaking, uh, always trying to teach, just not, not in a classroom or a traditional classroom most of the time. And I love the, you know, the range of students that I have, quote, because they, out of that range, I learned so much. Uh, about the rich diversity of our world. Um, so it, it's, it, you know, it, 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 there's so many points of surprise along the way. I honestly, I'm surprised that my writing has uh, met with such a, a good reception. It, um, it, it, on average, it's taken me six years to write a, a book. And w one of my um, one, of, one of the books that people seem to like a lot, The Courage to Teach, took me 10 years. Um, and, and so it, what that reflects is that I'm, I'm always writing about things that baffle me. And as soon as I peel off one layer of bafflement, I find something else to be baffled with underneath that layer. And it, it goes on and on that way until finally I feel like I've gone as deep into that subject as I can. So I guess I better pull this this book together and, and call it a day. Um, so, I've you know, I, I feel like I've written about the things I struggle with. Um, I don't I don't write from um, library research. I write from personal experience. And reflecting on it as thoughtfully as I know how. I try to write from the deepest place I can reach in myself around whatever my topic is, uh, in the belief that by doing so, I will reach a similarly deep place in, in my readers. Um, and I try to keep the reader in mind at all times, not a particular type of reader, uh, but just uh, someone who's interested in this 
in this thing that I think I've written most about, despite my, you know, the topics on the surface are diverse, education, spirituality, social change, community, leadership, democracy, uh, group process, et cetera, et cetera. But what all of them have in common is that I'm constantly trying to understand how, how our inner and outer lives interact, how they shape and co-create each other, and how we can do that dance of inner and outer in the most co-creative way. Uh, it's not only that we're creating the world or part of the world, recreating, I hope, part of the world through our words and actions, but it's also that the world is throwing stuff back at us that that recreates us. And a person should take great care about how they internalize what the world throws back and great care about what from within themselves they put out into the world. Thoughtfulness around those two questions is absolutely critical for people who wish to live transformational lives and grow into transformed selves. Mm. So all of that has taken me by surprise. I didn't set out to do any of it. You know, as the first person in my family to go to college, if you had told me, oh, you're going to be a writer and a speaker and some sort of public intellectual, I just would have laughed and said, no way, I'm going to fly planes in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, Amazing. Uh, life is full of surprises. Yeah. And I was also moved by you naming that you're, you really found your vocation around 51, 52, when you became a writer and an activist and a speaker, because I, I sort of interpreted you finding your vocation around the age of 29, 30, um, and becoming a community organizer. And so I, I, I think that's just an interesting thing for our audience to think about that, yeah. you know, there are probably stepping stones to a new path and, you know, maybe going through the community organization, um, experience and being with the Quakers helped you get there, right. Helped you kind of decide that this was, this was it. And I'm also curious, like, when did you know that that was the case? Like, what was, was there like a big aha moment? Like, when did you kind of move from being a community organizer or a teacher exclusively to then being more of a writer? activist? Yeah, I think it was a gradual emergence, Yasmin. Um, I think all of this happens slowly. And one of the terrible things in our culture is we we think we can force growth um, because we have a very mechanical image of who and what the human being is. Um, we want everything to move on an assembly line. you know. So we're asking kids who are in high school. So what do you want to do when you grow up? Because you darn well better choose a college program that prepares you for that. Well, nobody knows what yeah. they want to do <laughs> at that age with any accuracy. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, nobody said, well, you, hey, pal, you better go to pilot school, <laughs> get a degree in aeronautical engineering, because I would have been a real bomb out at that. Um, so. When I talk to young people about these things, and I do a lot because a lot of young people, as well as older people, 
have read Let Your Life Speak and some other books where I talk about this stuff, um, I'll, I'll say they'll come to me with frustration, even uh, fear and frenzy about the fact that they haven't figured out their life yet and what they what they want to do. And I'll say, well, how old are you? And, and somebody might say 30. And I, I'll always say, you, you won't believe this, but you're way too young to figure that stuff out <laughs> if, if my life is any measure. I didn't figure it out till I was 50, 51, 52. And they'll say, really? Yeah. And I said, I'll tell you this. If there were more adults, older adults, willing to be honest with you, most of them would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're all supposed to pretend in this culture that we have it together and we've always had it together. And that's just baloney. Uh, honesty is hard to come by among older adults because that's how they've kept themselves safe all these years. I'm also very fond of the fact, Yasmin, that Gandhi titled his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. Hmm. And he meant not only the truth about the world, but truth about himself. And so I love looking back on my life and looking at everything I've done, whether it was a step in the right direction or a step in the wrong direction, as an experiment with truth. In, in every one of those experiments, I've gathered important data about the world and myself and how we intersect. And of course, in, in an experimental life, just as in a scientific laboratory, not all the experiments work out, right? That's why we experiment. Um, to find out what might work out and eventually what will work out. And and so I look back on my 82 years and, and the, the, you know, the 60 plus of those that have been spent as, as a functioning adult with no regrets, even though I've made missteps along the way, because this notion of, of, of life as an experiment with truth really makes a lot of sense to me. And if we didn't hold things so tightly and demand of ourselves something that only a machine can produce, we would we would get that monkey off our backs. We aren't machines. We are organisms. We grow in, a, in an ecosystem. Sometimes we're, we need to transplant ourselves to an ecosystem that works for us. We, we grow toward the sun. So if there's stuff blocking the sun, we need to work work around that somehow, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I find great guidance in using organic metaphors for my life and for other people's lives that just aren't there in this mechanistic view of the human self that, this, that our culture, our Western culture tends to have. Mm, yeah. I, and I love the phrase experiment with truth because it sort of allows you to experiment, right? To kind of uh, not fail, but to try things. I think, I think that's something I've also observed that so many people are so scared of going for kind of new things or trying new things or quitting their job because there's a fear um, of the unknown and a fear of failure. And it's, it's really just how you categorize it, how, do, how you categorize these moments in your life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's just so interesting. And I know that we're coming near time, but I wanted to just quickly ask about a really important part of your life that we did not talk about, but you have alluded to it throughout the conversation, which is your three kind of bouts of depression and how that experience kind of shaped your life. And I think a lot of people right now are feeling either mild forms of depression or severe clinical forms of depression. And so I just remember you talking about what you found helpful as you were able to move through it. And I think that this would be a good conversation to have as so many people struggle with even knowing what to say to friends or people that are going through, uh, you know, mild to, to severe depression. Yes. Well, thank you. I'll, and I'll, as you know, it's a huge topic. We could actually do another conversation <laughs> on this topic alone. Um, and I, I never want to do it a disservice because it's such a serious challenge to so many lives and to the, and to people who live near, near the lives of, of those who are afflicted with this terrible, terrible disease. Um, so I, I will get as quickly as I can to what helped uh, in, helped me in that time. In the three times I was down and out, I just want to say quickly that I think people sometimes image serious depression as being lost in the dark. And I, I challenge that image. I, I think deep, profound clinical depression of the sort I had is more like becoming the dark. And there's a big difference. If you're simply lost in the dark, there's still a distinction between your sense of yourself and the surrounding darkness. So with that distinction, you can kind of grope around in the dark and, you know, maybe find uh, a potential window to open a little bit or, or a door or you know, some way of negotiating your condition, a little a light switch that turns on at least a dim nightlight. If there's a difference between you and the darkness, you can you can negotiate the darkness. But if you become the dark, um, that darkness is all there is. You have no way of negotiating it. You are just in it. You are it. You, I should say you're not in it. You are it. And in the depths of depression, that's exactly how it feels. There's there's an annihilation of self. This isn't just feeling sad. You know, this is feeling dead. It's, to, for me, in my life at least, it's the closest I'll ever come to the experience of, of dying. It's death in life. I mean, I for months at a time, I couldn't leave my room. I had to keep the shades down. Even the shades didn't provide enough darkness, so I had to put blankets over the rods that held the shade. The shades. Um, on those rare occasions, I knew I knew I needed to get out. I knew I needed to get some exercise, but I didn't dare walk down the street. As simple a thing as that, because someone might say hello to me and want to talk with me one of my neighbors, and I could not do that. The world was full of knives. So I would occasionally get on my bike and ride for five or 10 minutes as fast as I could so that if someone hailed me, I could just speed on by him. 
I was incapable of social interaction. I was incapable of working. I couldn't read a book. Your your attention is gone. You, you suddenly look up and realize I've been staring at this page for 30 minutes. And if you you have the misfortune of having to you know, be in a conversation with someone, um, you you can't attend to what they're saying. You just you keep realizing, oh, I I think he just asked me a question, and I I don't, I, but I can't remember it. I I wasn't here, so that's the nature of the condition that I'm talking about. And it's a much longer story as to how I got there and and how I got out. But I will tell you this about the people who who tried to come to me during that time when I was on rare occasions able to receive a visitor. Um, so many people were very well-intentioned, but they did things that left me more depressed. For example, uh, they would come to me and say, Parker, you, you really should get out of this dark room or dark house and and go outside. It's beautiful out there. The sun is shining. There's there's flowers. Enjoy, go out and enjoy them. Well, why would that leave me more depressed? It left me more depressed because intellectually, I knew what they were saying was true. I I, I knew I know that those are the things associated with natural beauty. But in my body, I could not feel a single scintilla of that. And so you realize my body is dead, my feelings are dead, my mind is dead, my will is dead. Uh, and it's an absolutely desperate feeling. So that advice just leaves you more depressed. Others would come to me and say, but Parker, you, why do you feel so terrible about yourself? You're a good person, you've helped other people, etc, etc. And there the depressive feeling would be, uh, that simply hearing that simply proves that I've defrauded another person. If they could see who I really am, the worm that I really am, they would toss me out. They'd cast me into the outer darkness. They would run as fast as they could away from me. So again, that that desire to help turns in the other direction and becomes more depressive there was there was one man who came to me when i lived in that quaker community he was a remarkable man older than i by six or seven years a deeply spiritual man a man of profound intuition i trusted him and he came to me one day and and said I'd like to do this very simple thing with you. Are you willing to give it a try? And if if you are, and if if you find it helpful, I'll keep coming back at the same time every day and do it again until you tell me that you need a break from it or you don't want to do it anymore. And I said, okay. Um, he He would have me sit down in a chair in my living room. He would take off my shoes and my socks. And for about 30 minutes, he would massage my feet. And he did that faithfully 
every day at the same time because when you're depressed and someone doesn't show up, does not show up for what they said they would do, you just realize that they hate you and they really don't want to do it. Um, he, he wouldn't speak, or he spoke very rarely during those times. He would just massage my feet. And when he did speak, it was very simple. He might say, I can feel your struggle today, and nothing more. Or he might say, I feel that you're a little stronger today, and nothing more. He would just mirror back to me what his intuition was. And most often he was right. But it was never like, let's talk about this, Parker. That would have been too much. And somehow he found the one place in my body, my feet, the soles of my feet, where I could feel a, a living connection to another human being, which in depression you cannot feel. One of, one of the most terrifying things about depression is you feel like an atom floating in the void disconnected from everything, which is not a way human beings can survive. I think lots more people know that now, uh, as we you know, move out of what I hope is the worst of the pandemic, where so many of us have had to be alone. But this is what Bill Tabor did for me, and I have always credited him as one of the most powerful healing healing persons and presences uh, during my depression. Uh, it was an extraordinary gift. And it was, if you want to put a name to it, it was the gift of simple presence. Um, and a very simple act of caring, massaging the feet, that um, says so much more than any well-intended words. And I'll just say one more thing, Yasmin. I came to understand that in our Western culture, in my part of Western culture anyway, we tend to engage in what I've come to call drive-by caring. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, people are scared of folks who are suffering mm. from things like depression, as if one had a contagious disease that they might catch if they stay in the room too long. So they would pop in, they would offer their support in, a, in one of these quick and dismissive, really, forms of caring, and then they'd be on their way, drive-by caring. But Bill Tabor wasn't afraid of me, and that was one of the biggest gifts he got me. He didn't regard me as having a contagious disease, and he wasn't afraid of catching it. He was willing and able simply to be present in a quiet and yet connective way um, that was always, always encouraging to me, even on the worst of, of my days. I think there are many ways to do that. Um, it's kind of like sitting at the bedside of a dying person and just conveying to them that you're not afraid of this experience and you know that they have the inner resources to see it through. Um, so I'll just, I'll leave you with, with those images and I hope they're helpful to people who are in that kind of situation. 
Mm, yeah. Wow. I'm so moved by that story. And I think a lot of people struggle with knowing what to say when someone, like you said, is either on their deathbed or is going through severe depression. And I think being able to just sit in silence even is such a, is enough. And I think we, we have to probably accept that, right? That, that just presence is enough. Um, yeah. And I, and I think it's huge really, because it's the one thing that we rarely give each other right. in, this, in, in my part of Western culture. Anyway, we're so often, you know, engaged in transactional relationships where you have something I want, I have something you want, and we go from there. But this is, this presence thing is huge. And anyone who has sat at the bedside of a dying person knows how huge it is. They know they don't have a fix for that problem. They don't have an answer to that problem. All they can do is faithfully attend the person on a journey that only he or she can make. He or she must make that journey on their own. And by sitting there and offering them our full presence, you know, not playing solitaire on our iPhone or whatever, not walking over to the window and staring out as if you'd like to get away, but just being fully present to that human being. We're offering them the finest possible gift in these extreme moments uh, when people need that, that very countercultural form of encouragement. Mm, powerful, powerful. Thank you so much, Parker. This was such a delightful conversation and I've learned so much. And Parker, is there anything that you want to tell our audience as your last main takeaway on, it could be courage, vocation, what's sort of the maybe call to action that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, what comes to me at this, at this moment, Yasmin, and let me say how much I've enjoyed the interview. Uh, the questions are wonderful, and I really appreciate your presence during this, uh, this time on Skype. Um, there are many possibilities here, but here's the one that comes to me since most recently we've been talking about folks coming to each other with difficult difficult problems. Uh, it may not be the problem of depression. It may be the young people, the young person who's in despair about not having found a full plan for their life at age 25 um, or, or, or whatever. Uh, I am hoping that more and more um, we can learn to listen to such people carefully to ask them questions that come out of not just curiosity, but out of a desire to hear them into deeper speech. Um, there was a wonderful theologian named Nell Morton who had this great phrase, we're, we're here to, to hear each other into deeper and deeper speech. And I think that's a gift we can give folks that helps them take the inner journey that, that life requires. And after we've listened and after we've heard, after we've reached a point where we're, we're sure that they feel like we're paying attention to them. I, the, the word I always want to say to people is 
welcome to the human race. <laughs> welcome to the human race. I know you think that your problem is unique to you. I know that you feel at this moment that you are alone in your suffering. But that's something that we do to ourselves, this feeling of isolation because we're suffering. Um, it, and it comes out of the fact that so few people are willing to talk about their own suffering in, in ways that might move them beyond it. So we double down on our suffering by imagining that we're the only person in the world who's ever felt that way or who's feeling that way right now. But when we share these things with each other, we have an opportunity to see how common these issues are in the human condition itself. And that quite apart, uh, quite that we're dead wrong about these things setting us apart. They, in fact, join us together. Um, there's a great line from one of Leonard Cohen's songs, one of my favorite musicians, where he taught, he says something like, um, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So if we can say, this struggle you're having actually joins you more deeply to the human race. Welcome to the human race. I know that it joins you more deeply because I've had my own version of that. And let's talk some more, but let's do it on the basis of we're all in this together. Mm, amen. That is amazing. I think so many people are not being honest with themselves or another. And I love that as the call to action to just be brutally honest with what we're going through and and being honest in a way that allows us to understand that we're not alone. And yes. that, yeah, that, that we're all probably feeling a lot of the same emotions day in and day out, um, but we're maybe embarrassed about telling people about them. I think that's right. And, you know, I'll just say one more thing. I do a lot of retreat work, have done for 40 or 50 years. And it always amazes me how a weekend retreat with maybe 25 people sitting in the circle where everyone has, you know, their own version of, of a similar problem and often a vocational crisis, for example. And nobody has the answer to it or even an answer to it. Somehow the experience of spending a weekend sharing their struggles and, and getting this the, the full presence of other people to them is the answer. And they walk away feeling lighter and clearer. And when we feel lighter and clearer, we have freed up what I call the inner teacher to help see us through this dilemma and find the response that will really work for us because it conforms to the shape of the life that wants to live in us. Mm. Well, amazing. And are you offering those retreats uh, next year uh, in person? Or um, are there any other resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your work? Yes, thank you. Um, so first of all, let me point you towards the organization I founded 25 years ago, uh, which has facilitators around the world in a variety of places called the Center for Courage and Renewal. The Center for Courage and Renewal. 
the best way to get there, I think, is to Google those words um, or Google, Google my name, Parker J. Period, middle initial Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R. Um, and it'll come up pretty quickly along with uh, my books on, um, there, you know, wherever books are sold online or uh, in bookstores, wherever you get your books, they're, they're, they can get their hands on one of mine. And the, if you're especially interested in the ret retreat work that I've done, a book called that I wrote called A Hidden Wholeness is maybe the one to buy. Uh, uh, for that. I also have a Facebook author page um, where, that I really enjoy posting on a couple of times a week. I post poetry, I post prose, I post um, challenges of various sorts to uh, our what's going on in this in this country today. I guess my tagline for the uh, for that page is uh, 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 pose, uh, prose, poetry, and politics, uh, <laughs> pro-decency, pro-democracy, etc. Um, and uh, again, just put my name, Parker J. Period Palmer, uh, into the Facebook search bar, and you'll come to it pretty quickly. So uh, I also have a a project with a wonderful singer-songwriter named Carrie Newcomer. Um, and we have this project called The Growing Edge, which is about helping people negotiate the growing edges in their lives. And it's at um, www.newcomer, N-E-W-C-O-M-E-R, newcomerpalmer.com. Um, or you can just Google The Growing Edge plus maybe Palmer, and you'll get there. So some places to check things out. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. And people can also find your books on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Um, and I will go check out A Hidden Wholeness because I have not read that one, and I am interested in retreats. So thank you so much for all of your work and everything that you've done, Parker, and for just inspiring so many people I love your ethos really about community and and how you've talked about abundance is really about community more than power, more than influence. And mm -hmm. I just, I, I really appreciate you sharing that and, and showing up in the way that you shut up. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Yasmin. Great joy to be with you today. Take good care. Thank you so much for your time, for our audience. Thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about the pursuit of vocation and finding purpose. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.